Welcome to Cheer Up, Buddy, the podcast for sad man movies. I'm Tom. I'm Riddy. And this week we're talking about the 2003 Sofia Coppola movie Lost in Translation starring Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. Riddy, what happens in Lost in Translation? Uh, Bob, Bill Murray, and Charlotte, Scarlett Johansson, find themselves alienated in Tokyo, Japan. So this was your first time seeing it, right? This was my first time seeing it. I had avoided seeing it, and I feel like uh, the listeners, whoever they are or might be, are going to learn a lot about me um, in the course of this podcast episode. Yeah, I, I don't think that was intentional when we picked it, but it definitely ended up factoring into it. So we'll we'll definitely get into that. But coming in with fresh eyes, what did you think about it? Yeah, um, so to give the listener a little bit of like background on my background, uh, I... Uh, did Asian studies in college as an undergrad. I focused on Japan and uh, South Asia and um, all my language classes were Japanese. I lived in Japan for like four to five years altogether. Um, a few years studying abroad, a few years working um, as an English teacher. Um, and then that was all before, well, no, that was not all before. I did a semester of uh, graduate school in Japan. Um, since uh graduate school I've been like going back like almost once a year um and that's been and that's like you know uh, two weeks at a time um and the last time I went was in 2020 and I literally got back right before the pandemic um I did remember you, did reading you bring about it back a with you <laughs> respiratory disease in uh China while I was in Japan and I was like I'm sure it'll just stay in China and that won't be a big deal and shows how much I know. Um, but I am planning on going back um, this year in November and um, really at the point thinking about buying an Airbnb place and uh, which will eventually like be like a summer retirement, whatever. Oh God, um, don't, don't tell me this. Cause then I'll just move in and never leave. Probably. That's fine. You can, <laughs> that's definitely, I mean, you don't have to pay pay the Airbnb fee um, or whatever it is. Still have to strip the sheets and take out the trash though. Yeah, I'm sure someone can do that anyway. <laughs> um, so I actually avoided watching this movie because I was like, oh, this is going to be like really orientalist. And, um, you know, for those of you who don't know the very quick, you know, Edward Said developed this like social science uh, or even like literary sort of um framework for like how the west views uh he focused on sort of the middle east but then like india china japan um and so it's actually like really good timing because i'm in the middle of like i've read like articles by saeed and like his like framework was a really big part of my like asian studies like studies and degree um but i i haven't read the actual book orientalism mm. um and so like i'm actually reading it now and so i i have a lot of thoughts i guess um on uh lost in translation um i'm also a fan of sofia coppola like i really like the version suicides like, me too yeah that was a great movie um like the book like the you know the air soundtrack to it so oh one of the all-time great film soundtracks oh absolutely um and i i have a little bit to say on that for lost in translation but um yeah, I, I, I'd love to ask you first, kind of, Tom, or did you ask me how are we doing this? <laughs> Coming in with fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. It's been 20 years. Yeah. Um, ultimately, I feel like time doesn't factor into it too much, but I was just wondering, 
you know, just the way social mores and the way the world has changed over those two decades. Uh, how did you perceive, how did you like it coming into it with a 2023 sensibility? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things going on. One is like, um, this movie came out in 2003. I lived in Japan at first uh, from 2005 to six. Um, and then like working from 2007 to nine. So like it was still that decade. So it really hit close uh, close to home for me. Um, just like that was the Japan that I like really lived in. Um, you know, I've been back and it's changing things. Um, you know, there's like, people joke about like how reliant Japan is on fax machines even now, like, you know, uh, this much later. Uh, but it's, it's still sort of true as far as I've seen, I haven't like worked in an office, uh, you know, in, in the 2020s or the, even in the 2010s, honestly. So, uh, but there's still like a huge reliance on fax machines and stuff. Um, I came in, like I said, like pretty biased to the movie, like it's going to be very Orientalist. Um, and I don't think that's completely changed, but I do think there's a little more nuance. Um, and it is like a very Sofia Coppola sort of movie. Like it does remind me of the Virgin Suicides. I don't feel quite as like harshly to it at, uh, having seen it. Um, but I do feel like there's a lot of like sort of Orientalist tropes. And and when I say that, I think a lot of it's like Japan is the setting uh, but Japanese people are sort of like props in the movie rather than like realized human beings. Um, and I'm sure we can get more into that as we like talk. Yeah, about it. that was one of the things I want definitely want to talk to you about because early on it there's a kind of a bit of a running joke where uh, someone will speak in Japanese for several seconds, if not a minute, and then when it's translated, it'll be a very short, yeah. few word sentence. And I was wondering I, I ended up finding some of the translations online mm-hmm. uh, specifically the scene i'm thinking of is when the so the bill murray character is there as a former famous uh movie star i guess is what we're supposed to take away from it and he's there filming a whiskey commercial and there's a scene where the the whiskey commercial director has these very long elaborate instructions in japanese and then the translator will just say turn to your left and so it, it definitely felt uh I don't, I'm I'm totally ignorant about the Orientalism aspect of it, but it definitely was like, oh, we're, I couldn't tell if they should take that as, oh, foreigners are funny. Like it was, or it was just like, I guess realistically that could happen in any country where you you don't speak the language, but it definitely, it felt a little weird to me. Yeah. Actually, that one, that aspect or that, like that joke, I think they got a little bit of mileage out of that joke through the movie. Um, didn't feel as bad to me. Maybe a because like you know everyone is speaking like perfect textbook Tokyo dialect Japanese, and so I followed it. It didn't feel like alienating, um, but also like um, I refuse to do live translation. Um, it, you know, uh, I've had like a couple of times like been offered to like do like live translation. I'm like, there's no way, man. It's a really hard uh, gig, and so. Um, you know, I just for my own like sake would be like, he says turn to the left. Um, but I followed like the directions as he was giving it. And I thought that was like kind of funny because um, it does feel like, oh, if I'm not, if I feel shaky about like translating that, you know, this Japanese into English or this English into Japanese, like um, I will, and especially I guess like from English into Japanese, like I will keep it short um, so that I don't, I don't mess up on my own, you know, side. But I do feel like 
the L's and R things like that joke went on for quite a long time through the movie and wasn't that like, you know, funny. And it even like, you know, I take like Japanese, like still like um, once a week. And I remember the last couple of weeks there, I've been reading articles uh, and there's just been like sets of syllables that I'll read through and I can't, it's like a tongue twister. And I like break down laughing because I just can't, you know, get through it. Um, my, you know, I wasn't expecting that set of syllables to come together or like uh, it, they sound like similar and like I'm having trouble like verbalizing it. And so in the same way that like, there isn't like a huge distinction between R and L in Japanese, like um, there are things where I'm like, oh my, damn my English speaking tongue for not being able to yeah, do your, this. Yeah, right. was it your gaijin tongue can't handle it? Is that Yeah, right? my gaijin tongue can't handle it. And I'm like, ah, oh, damn, damn it. Um, and so like, I, I do feel like there were things in like, there's like an extended sort of uh, set of scenes, you know, through the movie uh, where Bill Murray is like making fun of like the Japanese, like people around him and stuff like the sushi, the sushi chef. Speaking of syllables, I can't mm-hmm. say um, I've really not, uh, I'm not great at speaking, um, which means like I'm uh, a real uh, boon to this podcast. But... She sells sushi shells down by the seashore. Yeah. Uh, or like, you know, uh, you know, when he's making fun of people in the hospital um, and no one in the hospital speaks English. And like, I lived in like rural Japan for a couple of years. And like, even my doctor spoke like some English. Um, that, I, that was one scene I wanted to talk about specifically. Yeah. Getting a little ahead of ourselves. But since you mentioned it, the the hospital scene where the per, the elderly person's talking to him. Did you understand what was being said because oh yeah in, in the scene there's the two ladies in the background who are cracking up and i yeah. was just i tried to find it it wasn't on imdb like some of the other translations yeah. and i was too lazy to google it but what was what was he saying to to bob harris in that scene his basic question was just like how long have you been in japan how many years have you been in japan um, and he's trying to like represent like flying to japan or like coming to japan and it is like pretty funny like understanding it because he's like trying like i guess like you know he's not he can't you know say the english words for like how long have you been here like when you flew over here or how long have you been here and so it gets to be like this weird game of charades uh uh charades um and he's like trying to like show like the plane coming over uh but it's a really sort of abstract maybe abstract i don't know if there's like a concrete way of saying like how long have you been here mm-hmm. um, in a sort of like, you know, sign language sort of way. But um, yeah, that's all he was asking. It was like, how long have you been here? Okay. I was, I was so curious because the two ladies in the background were just seemed like they were hearing the funniest thing they've ever heard in their lives. So I was just like, what is this old person saying? I thought maybe it was like the Japanese version of golden girls. I was very, <laughs> I was feeling very left out. It just feels like it, it, the conversation spiraled like out of control. Like, um, you know, it's a very like basic question. And like, you know, when you're like in Japan or like learning Japanese, like you hear it a lot. Like, how long have you been here? Um, usually uh, followed by, oh, your Japanese is so good when it's not really that good at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it was funny like how quickly that like conversation kind of spiraled out of control. Well, since you mentioned spiraling out of control, I feel like <clears throat> taking it back to the, the loose pretense of this podcast with the sad man element. Oh, yes. Uh, 
Bill Murray's a you know he's a guy. I guess he's what on the verge of a midlife crisis, or he's already in a midlife crisis. I mean, that's kind of where the existential ennui, I suppose, comes from for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you make of his character, like just as a whole? I mean, it was very Bill Murray, and like one of my notes was like. Mm-hmm. Basically every late period Bill Murray movie, like uh, he's playing the same dude. Whether it's oh yeah, but uh, yeah, Life Aquatic, which uh, you know we should. Uh, is- yeah, I, I made a list yeah. where where did I'm trying to find in my notes where I was just like, oh, we could do a whole series of Sad Man Bill Murray movies. Whereas it's this, I was trying to remember if this was the first one, which I think it was because there's this. Maybe well, maybe have been Rushmore. I think I, Rushmore made Rushmore's on that list. I think Rushmore, you did Bombs. Yeah. Life Aquatic. Yeah. yeah, I mean he's he is sad in, in Royal Tenenbaums, but he's a he's like a tertiary character yeah, in that. Yeah. Uh, there's also the Broken Flowers movie, yeah. which I remember liking when I saw it, but I don't remember too much about it. I think that's Jim Jarmusch, if I remember correctly. The uh, Moosh. Yeah, Jimmy J. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's it was an interesting character because like. I was thinking about it while watching it. So I looked up the ages of Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson mm-hmm. when they filmed this. Mm-hmm. He was 51. She was 17. And so <laughs> I'm not I'm not quite to 51 yet. I still got... A, well, that was going to be my question is how old do you think he was in... And I ask that because in terms of us, like, are we at that, like, middle age, uh, you know, midlife crisis yet or... Well, I think going off the average lifespan of the American male, I think we're close to it, but we also live in states that have higher than average. So for now, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> until the global apocalypse. Well, is we're from crying. like Tennessee, Florida, and Georgia, essentially. So we're mm-hmm. from the states that have probably the lowest. But we also had survival instincts and got out and That's moved true. to California and Colorado. So, you know, we're slightly improved, I suppose. Uh, no, I don't think we're middle-aged. I don't think we're there. Yeah. But I was thinking that it, it is an interesting dynamic because when this came out, I was, I think, 19 or 20. I forget mm-hmm. when in 2003 it came out. I think it came out when I was still 19. Yeah. So I'm still pretty close to the Scarlett Johansson character at that point. And now I'm closer to the Bill Murray character. Mm-hmm. And it, I feel like it did provide an interesting contrast where when I saw it as a kid, it's like, oh, this is a love story. It's just kind of like they're separated by age, but it's two lonely people trying to like find, uh, you know, some sort of comfort in a stranger because they're in a stranger in a strange land. They don't, mm-hmm. neither one of them understands the language. Uh, Bill Murray's there alone. Scarlett Johansson is, in essence, there alone. She's there with her husband, who's a photographer and is never around mm-hmm. uh, for some reason is seems more interested in Anna Ferris than Scarlett Johansson. And I think mm-hmm. we can all agree that that's uh, a mistake. No shade towards Anna Ferris, but uh, come on. Anna uh, Ferris just hung up the podcast. Thanks to you. <laughs> oh, sorry, Anna. Uh, but you no, know, it's a, it's an interesting story because that when I'm younger, I interpreted it solely as a love story or a stunted love story. And now 20 years later I could see it more as a kind of a fine balance between a love story but also like a parental story like there are definitely times where it was very ambiguous whether Bill Murray had romantic interest in Scarlett Johansson or if he had like paternal interest in it because there is a kind of a running 
element throughout the story about his kids like when he arrives mm-hmm. to the hotel in japan he has a fax waiting for him from his wife saying that he missed one of his kids birthdays and then there's like every i don't know maybe every 25 30 minutes throughout the movie he has a call with his wife and you can hear the kids in the background and then it's i think almost always followed by a scene where he's with her and you know you alluded to it earlier where he takes her to the hospital so it's kind of like this weird mishmash of of uh like romantic love paternal Mm -hmm. love and you know sometimes both at once so Mm -hmm. what did you think about that I really yeah like I think kind of seeing it for the first time as an older man I do think there were elements of all of it and I did read like one interpretation of it that like his uh sleeping with that lounge singer later in the movie um you know uh basically like stunted that like potential sexual tension that they had and I think that you know what the the theory was saying is that was able to keep their relationship pretty pure, even though there was that like tension they had. Um, But I don't know, like, as we talk about it, I also sort of think that there was like, it was this mishmash of like uh, parental relationship and romantic interest. And like, I don't, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, Charlotte was supposed to be 17. I think she was supposed to be like a little bit older than that. Yeah. In the, in real life, she was 17, but in the movie, she, she was a post, she was a recent college graduate. Oh, that's right. So she must have been yeah. 22, 23, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. They they did say that. And so, like... Um, yeah, because if she was 17 in the movie, this would be a Lolita sequel. Yeah. Uh, but, like, I, you know, I think it almost reminds me of Akira, too. And so, like, maybe that's, like, something we should watch. Um, but, like, boiling down, like, the relationship until it's, like, these are just human relationships um, and two people sort of find each other in this place where they're like completely sort of isolated and alienated from the, you know, everyone around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm not sure. I do think there was an element of like that sexual tension, but I don't know if either of them would act on it um, mm-hmm. in the movie. If, you know, you know, if you, if, for instance, like Bill Murray's character didn't sleep with the lounge singer. Um, I don't know. I don't, I kind of don't think so. Like, I think there's so much of that like parental relationship in there that, um, you know, I don't think it could have gotten into a romantic relationship for them. I think they both sort of knew better. Yeah. Um, that, that was sort of the vibe that I got to, because, you know, spoiler alert, they do end up smooching at the end. Yeah. But it didn't feel romantic necessarily almost was like a just like a very intense goodbye if that makes sense yeah yeah Hmm. yeah i I do like i i feel like it wasn't a kiss between romantic partners it was a kiss between two people had that had sort of like gained something from each other Mm -hmm. um and their experience together um but you know like not 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 in a sort of sexual kind of way so that's that was my sort of interpretation of it well, I, I'm going to dive into a probing question. Have you ever had any sort of relationship like this? Not necessarily like a romantic, but, you know, any, have you ever met somebody while abroad or while in some situ- situation where you're kind of on your own? Have you ever found like some sort of uh, sanctuary and another random stranger just for that period of time? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, 
I do think it gets pretty intense. Like even on those study abroad experiences, even sort of living on my own, the people you do end up meeting, like it does intensify. Um, and then you're like a swirl of hormones from like the age of like 14 to like 28, right? Like, um, you know, yeah, maybe a little bit more the upper, the upper end. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, like, you know, it, it, you have relationships where one person thinks it might be romantic and the other person doesn't. And um, it sort of t- stays platonic because of that, or like mm-hmm. maybe one or both people sort of understand it should be platonic or, you know, things like that. But yeah, like definitely, um, you know, I made friends, uh, especially in that like study abroad experience that um, ended up being like lifelong friends. And I know that our like relationship sort of like um, was intense because we were going through this like different sort of thing together. Mm-hmm. Um and we relied on each other for things, you know, that happened that didn't have an, uh, necessarily like an exact analog in the U.S. Or there are people like when I study or not study abroad, but like taught English in Japan that were like other English teachers in like the di- districts near me. And like I spent time at their houses. We would watch movies. We would do like, you know, all kinds of like stuff. And I don't keep in touch with them necessarily, but they still are important parts of my life where I was like, you know, I had a super shitty day at work. I didn't have anyone to talk to. Um, and you were there for me and like took me out or whatever. And, um, you know, we did that kind of thing for each other. And so, um, yeah, that kind of thing like means a lot. So I think like, as the experiences are sort of intensified, um, sort of outwardly, like, um, your sort of, uh, relationship with the people around you gets intensified too. So like that, I think definitely happened, uh, for me. Yeah, I was trying to remember for me, because I've done a, a good amount of traveling on my own, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I'm also a very painful introvert most of the time. Uh, the only thing I could remember is I, I guess, uh, it's about, se- about seven or so years ago, six or seven years ago, I was considering leaving Denver and moving to potentially Seattle or Portland. So I took a trip up there, I spent a couple days in Seattle, spent a couple days in Portland. Mm-hmm. And when I was in Portland, I, one of my favorite places in the world, I'll say is Powell's Books, which if anyone has, doesn't know what I'm talking about, it's a bookstore. It's like four or five stories tall. It's the size of an entire city block. Um, It's just one of the most majestic places in the world. When I walked in for the first time back in 2013, I wasn't sure if I was going to cry or come because it was just like the most overwhelming experience I'd ever seen in my life as a book nerd. So I mentioned that because when I was there in 2017, I think it was, uh, I went and bought a book, went to a local brewery, was just sitting at the counter, and some woman, uh, comparable age, so I was probably early 30s or mid-30s, eh, whatever, uh, someone just started talking to me. He's like, oh, did you get that book at Pals? And I was like, yes, I did. And they're like, oh, me too. And then a few seats down, another woman was like, yeah, I just bought a book there too. And so it turned out all three of us were traveling solo. And so we all just teamed up for the day. And uh, I remember we wandered to the some sort of some sort of river, I think, and walked around there. Then we got dinner at, a brew, at another restaurant brewery type thing. And then I talked him into going on a Portland ghost tour with me. So the three of us went on a group tour of that. And then afterwards, we all just went our separate separate ways, never saw each other again. I think we became Facebook friends and never spoke to each other ever again. But that was the only thing I could think of. So it was definitely not as intense as uh, 
meeting Scarlett Johansson in a Tokyo hotel, but you know, I had some some semblance of life experience to kind of relate to with it. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say, like, there's a pretty, like, you know, we sort of mentioned uh, they don't, like, subtitle any of the Japanese. And so it does feel sort of, or it's meant to feel sort of, like, isolating or alienating if, you know, you don't speak Japanese. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, it, they've done that in other movies as well. Like, I was looking it up, but, like, Lee Majors and Toshiro Mifune are in Hell in the Pacific. And they're basically the only two people in that movie uh, and they don't hmm. subtitle any of Toshiro Mifune's lines. Um, so you get that sense of like isolation or like what's, you know, kind of what's happening. Um, and I saw a lot of like white Western, especially teachers on the jet program. Cause it was like harder on jet. Cause you were like sort of by yourself in a school district or like mm-hmm. a geographic space. Yeah. Cause I remember from what I remember you telling me that you were in a remote village, right? Oh, you I was in the middle of nowhere. Like, yeah. I was in Aomori, which is like the top part of the main Island and like, uh there was no but like you know i don't even remember the population of the town but it was like really small it was very rural and so um yeah like i like in the same way that like scarlett johansson's character was trying to do like flower arranging and stuff like i definitely did like calligraphy with like a very old japanese lady um like friday that was my like friday night like activity um but i saw like white people who never sort of had that like experience grow like a little bit crazy Mm -hmm. um, just from like being isolated and not talking to the same for, you know, other foreign teachers, like every, uh, you know, at every like event or things like that. And so um, I, 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 it, it made me like the movie made me sympathize with them more than I did um, at the time. And I think, uh, you know, it does, I, I can understand like, if you don't speak the language, like it's, and you know, my Japanese is not always great and it's probably worse now than it was then, but like, um, you know, it, 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 it would suck to be in a place and not speak the language and not really have an outlet for that. Um, and I wonder like, is, well, is Japan unique in that regard? Or like, could you live in like, you know, middle of nowhere, like Italy and like not speak Italian and still like sort of, muddle through or not muddle through and I, I I'm thinking about like you know uh Aziz Ansari's show I don't know if you saw that one mm-hmm. uh what was it called Master of None mm-hmm. and I think the first couple of episodes in the second season he's like living in Italy and I think he's in like a more metropolitan sort of area but oh, see, um, I was thinking of Diane Lane movies where she's inevitably ends up in somewhere in Italy and she's just like oh pretty lady we help you so you know <laughs> You know, I, I just kind of hope that I could kind of fall into pretty lady territory and someone would take mercy on me and help me out. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I had those experiences like everyone, like I got lo- like really lost one time and some guy like we went the same direction to the um, to the nearest like um, train station or whatever. And he paid for the cab and stuff and he was super nice, like uh, didn't ask me to like rip his stocking um yeah, that, at any point I, was, the ride. I, I kind of wanted to talk about that but i wasn't sure what to say so yes. <laughs> uh yeah let's let's put a button on that one yeah yeah well, yeah, we'll, we'll i got we'll, i've got a note about it so we'll come back to oh it. yeah there's so many notes i'm so my notes are stream of consciousness and i meant to organize them before this because one of the first thing I'm, I'm totally hijacking the conversation back to the very beginning of the movie mm-hmm. but i feel like we have to discuss the opening shot of this film, which I, yes. I 
feel is safe to say is probably iconic at this point. The film opens. Scarlett with, Johansson's butt. Yeah. Like, why? Why? Why did you? I could not figure out what the intent of that was. It's just rather aside from just shocking. Oh, it's it's a butt crack. Like what? What did you think of that as an opening? And then in the context of the film, like I could not really see how it fit in necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, let me well, let me ask you because I actually accidentally spoiled it for myself. Uh... And as I was doing like a little bit of like research that I did, um, found out why. Oh, please tell me. I I, I meant to find this out. I mean, okay, it's not going to be a satisfying answer, but uh, from what is. I understand, Sofia Coppola just wanted to do a shot like that. Um, and so did it here. Um, clearly, um, uh, you know, uh, there are worse people to do it with than Scarlett Johansson. Um, and like, there's a painting that is similar to that shot um, mm. that she based it on. And I was looking it up. I couldn't quite find it. And it's evidently in the movie, but I didn't notice it. And so uh, might be something for a rewatch. Um, but uh, there is this thing like, I don't, I don't know what to what to what degree. Like, there's a lot of sexuality about Scarlett Johansson in this movie. Um, I thought like there was a pretty good degree, and basically every like, if she's alone by herself, she's in those pink panties. Like, mm-hmm. and there's like you know those like, um, you know, butt shots of her like throughout the movie. Um, but is that like, is that like you know fan service for? Is Sofia Coppola doing fan service in the movie, or is it like? No, I, I can't yeah. imagine that is fan service. I just took that as to be, this is what this character wears to be comfortable when she's alone. You yeah. know, there's no uh, element of sexuality to it. It's just, oh, I'm comfortable in my underwear, so I'm just yeah. going to hang out in my underwear. So, like, yeah, you're in a like hotel all that room. like sort of armor is like taken off or taken down, sort of when she's by herself, and that's not true, even when her husband is around. Um, and then especially when she's out either with uh, Bob or, or in Japan generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was really, I was really pleasantly surprised that it was not sexualized and I, not that I remembered it being that way, but it had been so long, it probably been over 10 years since I'd seen it. So I really couldn't remember whether there was any kind of like, Ooh, look at, look at this beautiful woman type sequence, but really she's just like, yeah, I mean, she's an inherently attractive woman, really. She's just, like, dresses like a normal person. Like, there's no, you know, she just, she looks like a Yale graduate, <laughs> as the character is. Like, there's nothing, you know, provocative about it. Are you saying on, on the record and on the podcast here that Yale is known for its attractive graduates? Uh, the only, you know, I'm not going to go down this avenue because <laughs> it would be too weird. Uh, but I'll say no. Uh, okay. Not that I... I can only think of one person I know of that went to Yale. Okay. But um, I'll keep that relationship a mystery. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, so. uh... Well, all right. Here's another question that, you know, tangential to the movie. Yeah. I've always heard Japanese hotel rooms are like sort of crazy by Western standards. Is that true? And when you say crazy, let, like let's hear what, what like you mean. Like bidets in, like uh, I guess mostly just bidets, like the bidets that kind of 
play music for you as it's tickling your butthole with water. Like <laughs> that's it, it's stuff like that. And yeah. kind of, you know, and you always hear the the stories about like capsule rooms, but I'm not even referring to that stuff. Yeah. I'm just from your experience, are Japanese hotel rooms distinctly Japanese or are they just hotel rooms? Uh, kind of both. Like, and me, this kind of maybe talks to the larger, uh, you know, question of the movie, but like, most of the hotel rooms that I've been in, yeah, do have bidets. Some of them can be like crazy, uh, like butt warming, and they might play music to you know, let you know how long the bidet is going to go and stuff like that. Um, spoiler alert, like my my goal, I don't know if I'm gonna, we're going to stay in this house for super long, but wherever I end up like long term, like I'm going to buy those Japanese toilets. <laughs> um, Toto has like a showroom down in the, in San Francisco, and so... I've been there like a few times um, and uh, yeah, like they have those. So they, they have those like, you know, pretty awesome um, toilets for sure. And then like, I've been from everything from like the budget, like it's basically a bed and like room enough to like walk to the bed. And then to like, a, I've been to like one or two, like really fancy hotels uh, in Japan. Um, and the fancy ones are like kind of amazing. Like, there was one um, where like every floor had like one or two like central uh, open space rooms that just like restocked like Japanese snacks and tea and like maybe ice cream. And like, that was pretty amazing um, and super nice furniture and like um, really like luxurious, like bath amenities and stuff like that. Um, so I've been to like some really sort of crazy places. And then there's been a few hotels where like, um, we went to a Hello Kitty themed one, uh, my wife and I, <laughs> um, and it wasn't like that crazy, but there was like a huge, like stuffed Hello Kitty that was bigger than her and maybe bigger than me. Um, and the, like the, uh, everything in the room was like pretty Hello Kitty themed. Um, and then we were going to do one, like there's a, like a major festival in that prefecture I live in, um, I lived in Almori. Um, and there was, a um, like a, that festival themed hotel room. Mm -hmm. um, and we had booked that for like later in 2020, which obviously did not happen. Mm. But um, yeah, so I've seen like a few of those, which, uh, you know, they get pretty fancy. And um, there's that scene, I think pretty early in the movie where Bob like goes to the bathroom and like gets ready. And um, the shower looks like really high tech and is too short for him. Oh, well, I sympathize with that entirely. I, I think even in the States, tall man problems is always, showers always <laughs> going to be a, a bit of a complication there. And I, I, from what I've heard that tall people stick out in Japan. I mean, I, well, I, guess it's a stereotype, I do but. have a note about this. You met my friend, I think Michael once, um, he was my friend in Japan. We met there. Um, and you're both from Florida. You're both tall white men and you're valuable to me because uh, I can see you in a crowd of Japanese people uh, I am mostly <laughs> Japanese sized, but um, it's really helpful, like get a crowd of people to be like, that's my friend. I can see him even from miles away because he's taller than everyone around. Oh, I mean, that's why my family invites me to go to Disney World with them, just so they can always <laughs> find one way of getting the prevent getting lost in a crowd. Well, going off that, you know, we, you and I have taken 
w- one vacation together, but mm-hmm. do you consider yourself a hotel guy? Like when I travel, I really only go to hotels to sleep. Like I've never been in a situation where I re- actively like spend a lot of time in a hotel. Mm-hmm. I think the most time I spent in hotels, I got snowed in in DC one time and I had to stay mm-hmm. alone in a hotel room and that was boring as shit. But like are, when you travel, do you, are you someone who spends time in a hotel? Like that just seemed confusing to me personally the the amount of time that they spend in the hotel rather than Mm -hmm. going out and about and doing stuff well and i think again like we're like touching on this like larger part of the movie like i think uh bob uh in the movie says like to uh to charlotte like i'm organizing a prison break are you in and like um with his wife he says uh you know evidently about japan we don't really hear the other side of the conversation but um or i didn't uh, but he says it's not fun. It's just very, very different. Mm-hmm. Why is it that fun? Go have fun. Like, there's so much. To, you're in, like, you know, one of the great metropolises of the world. Like, um, if you can find something fun to do in New York, you can find something fun to do in Tokyo. Like, um, but, yeah, I'm not, like, a hotel person. Like, probably the only couple of times I spent a lot of time in a hotel was, like, that really fancy one where... Um, we were there for several days and like I had a job interview that I took. Yeah, well, it sounds like that in that situation, the hotel was an attraction in and of itself. It kind of was. And I would like go get like, I I ate my, you know, fair share of snacks. Like I definitely tried to get my money's worth some snacks. Um, but like for the most part, like I, the hotel is not a um, a draw for me. Like I mm-hmm. like, I'm fine staying in like a bed hotel where it's like I sleep there and then the next day, like I'm out, like. At most, like, um, you know, I'll use the hotel to, like, rest, like, in the middle of the day and, like, mm-hmm. come back so I can leave at night again. Or, um, you know, we'll come back at night and we'll watch, like, dumb TV and, like, have, you know, Japanese donuts or whatever. Like, some, like, or get, like, Japanese ice cream at the convenience store. And, and like, that's fine. But I, I don't want to spend like a ton of time in the hotel um you know that might be changing as i get older and i get like a little bit more of like uh it's a little easier to get tired during the day but uh yeah like i i can't I, it doesn't i didn't really understand why they were spending so much time in the hotel well i think maybe that's a reference right there he's talking about the tiredness i mean i think kind of the the jet lag and the insomnia that comes with that that ends up being a big part of the movie and that that's one thing and like not only are these two characters sort of isolated by the fact that they're in a foreign country, they don't speak the language. They're both mm-hmm. on different schedules from the rest of the, the city. Yeah. So I felt like that was kind of a interesting part. I wasn't sure. I'm sure there's some significant meaning that I'm missing there, but well, I didn't, I didn't quite catch it. I didn't quite realize that they were completely on different schedules. Like, um, so that is interesting. And I do agree, like, especially like it tends to take me like two weeks um, not that my sleeping schedule is always great uh, otherwise. And like, sometimes my sleeping schedule is so bad in the U.S., like go to Japan and it works out fine, at least going. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember like when I was teaching, like I came back from like visiting my parents and like just asleep at my desk in the teacher's room because like I could not stay awake. Oh, I um, I yeah. cannot. I do not deal well with jet lag. So I guess I, I guess the rule of thumb it's supposed to be one day per time zone yeah. or you're fully acclimated. Uh, it always hits me hard because, you know, as we mentioned already, I'm a very tall man. So it's nearly impossible for me to fall asleep on an airplane just because 
I've not had the luxury of sleeping and getting tickets in first class. So I'm always kind of folded up like a, like a card table and coach. And yeah. so it's always very difficult experience for me. And the story that comes to mind is a, a few years ago, uh, I went to Africa for a friend's wedding and this trip started by flying into Johannesburg, spending a night in Johannesburg, but like night is a very loose term. Cause I think we arrived oh, at the hotel nice. around like midnight or 1am local time and had to be up and out by six or seven to start a drive to go on a safari. And so we were at this uh, safari resort for I think two or three nights and then after that, my my girlfriend and I were going to go to Cape Town. And by the time we got to the Johannes Airport to fly to Cape Town, I legitimately thought I was going to die from exhaustion because I think I'd slept maybe seven hours over the course of four days. Like, I just could not sleep at all. And, like, she said I was pale. And, like, she – it was the first time she was like, oh, there is something significantly wrong with this person. But luckily, I just passed out on the plane. And just the moment I sat down, I was out. Like, I don't remember the flight at all. I remember sitting down and then her shaking me saying, we're here. So it was, but it was, it was a scary moment. Because, like, I legitimately thought I was going to get sick or something was going to happen to me. Because I was just so exhausted from jet lag. So that's my fun travel story. You're, it's a good thing you didn't call it your fun South Africa story uh you know it was a good trip but uh... that 12 years you you were kept in jail though that was less well i actually died in prison people oh. people <laughs> get confused by that a lot it's the baron steam bears not the baron stain bears <laughs> um yeah i don't i just like um i know like bob says like i could be doing a play in new york and i'm like you could be doing a play in tokyo like there's so much stuff to do and like there's been a few times where like I've been in Tokyo and there's not that I've had some like downtime or like I plan to have some stuff to do just in the city and like museums are like granted like I love Japan and so like I'm more like inclined to do this kind of thing but like museums are awesome like the art scene is awesome I've been to like live like rock and hip-hop shows in Japan like um and like you know there's been shows like I went to like or I was in Tokyo specifically to like catch this show and and um there's so much stuff to do and we kind of go through some of like the the label stuff or like the the stuff that you have to do in japan i guess like scarlett johansson like goes to the arcade and like i definitely knew the sounds of uh drum master taiko no tatsujin before they showed it on the screen yeah i mean um, I, I feel bad I'm, i feel like i'm mostly turning this into a give me a report on your tra travels in japan but i was curious like had did you spend much time in the arcades and also did you ever do any of those karaoke rooms oh i did the karaoke rooms all the time like when i hung out with japanese people and even like sometimes us like foreign people would just go and like uh and then like afterwards like people knew like friends from like law school and stuff like that that like i did the asian karaoke rooms and so we would do that um so when i was in law school we did it like two or three times uh and then um i think when i left uh georgia and athens like we did it as sort of a goodbye thing so yeah like did the karaoke rooms a ton um not that i'm do, a good do you singer, have a go-to like, song did i have a go-to song um like i did a lot of like english songs so like 
total eclipse of the heart um creep yeah, that's when you, that's a banger that's a banger uh radiohead's creep when you want to bring the the the, the evening down a little bit <laughs> um and then when like you I want everybody to, do, to feel your pain yeah and then like i did a few japanese songs like um Utada hikaru like she had some like english a few songs she did in english and japanese and so i we did the japanese versions a few times oh and then the blue hearts have this uh punk song uh from the i want to say the 80s um linda linda um oh yeah 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 which is good and i that i know the words too um but it usually took me like having to like sit down and like learn the lyrics for like uh japanese songs um so did that i didn't spend a ton of time in arcades but i go um when i go to japan for fun like i'll go like once or twice like those like drum master games with the big drums like again retirement dream is to like buy one of those and have that like on site in my house <laughs> um so like when i become an nba star um that's what i'm gonna do but um so i like like playing that and like the the full body like mario kart games and stuff like that like i still um you know i do that and then they have those like print club sticker machines like i think they've gotten less popular as time has gone on but like they were pretty popular in, like you know, early 2000s, even like late 90s. Um, and those used to be like adjacent to arcades or like in the arcade. So I would go do that, um, you know, with friends or 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 girlfriends or whatever. Um, and then like Pachinko, like she does like that one, I think she goes into a Pachinko patty slot sort of place. Like, and that's like a form of like gambling. And it's like kind of like um, Plinko on The Price is Right. Plinko is basically sure. just Pachinko. Um but it's like the main form of like gambling in Japan. And so uh, like as foreign students, we went in there one time and basically you, it the ball falls down and you try to like guide it into like certain holes at the bottom. And like you win the balls uh, that you can trade for prizes and you can trade the prizes for money. Cause you can't like, I think legally gamble for money uh, in Japan with those pachinko machines mm. um, that might be changing. Cause I know they're trying to build the casino in Osaka, but at that time, like you couldn't like gamble for real money. Um, so the, the workaround was you gamble for prizes and then you can trade the prizes in for money. Um, and like, it's like very overwhelming sort of like sound and noise and light. Um, and I only went into them like once or twice just to see what it was like, like, mm -hmm. um, but it's a lot. And um, I did data girl, like it's a little bit like, I don't want to use the phrase like low class, um, but it kind of is like a little bit low class, mm -hmm. but I did data girl who, whose parents did pachinko a lot. And so like every once in a while, she'd give me like a towel or like something like small, like they had like one from the pachinko plays. And so, um, but yeah, like I felt like they went into like all those experiences and like, sure, like that's not like how you can like find meaning in life or whatever, like kind of what Char uh, Charlotte was looking for. But, um, you know, I feel like there's a lot of stuff to do that, um they could have done they could have like found sort of you know it sounded like for bob's character or for bob like acting and being an actor was like part of that life um life's meaning and he could have done stuff like that if he had really wanted to um you know in his time in japan i guess yeah i, I mean i i guess uh, hmm. just to play devil's advocate for him which mm -hmm. i don't think anyone necessarily needs to be the devil advocate for bill murray anymore but it did seem like it was just a 
like he expected it to be a quick turnaround business trip so i can yeah, see true. where he was just like all right do this do the gig and go home and then it just so happened that he met this person that you really like hanging out with and ended up extending his stay just to spend more time with her yeah um i don't know i mean it was at the end right as he's about to leave and he calls her one last time just like you know under the pretense of getting his jacket back yeah like i legitimately felt sad like i just you know i yeah didn't cry but i could feel like you know i could feel them kind of trying to push their way through there because and i was really not expecting that because i don't know i mean i obviously i liked this movie a lot when i saw it. i mean it was definitely one of those first indie artsy movies i started to get into because mm-hmm. you know I was a pretentious movie kid growing up. Movies are really important in my family. And then when we were in middle school or early high school, that AFI top 100 list came out. So I tried to like go through as much of that as I could. And then when I got to college, it was easier to kind of go see these indie artsy films. So like this and Punch Drunk Love were kind of like my first foray into that world. And mm-hmm. so I really enjoyed it. But I don't know. I, I kind of expected my, before watching the game, I figured I'd maybe be like, oh, this movie's probably going to not resonate in a similar way anymore just because I'm older and the kind of cognizant of the age difference because I I was thinking, I think one of the biggest differences in age that I've ever had in a relationship is like five years when I was 30 and she was 25. And at that point, I was just like, I cannot relate to this person at all. So the fact Who that there's- Justice Bieber? <laughs> she wanted me to drink a strawberry smoothie and i was like uh no thank you millennial um no but i was i was really kind of surprised that it still kind of had an emotional impact for me and i don't know whether it's just kind of hit on this universality of loneliness that everyone can relate to or or whether there was like genuine chemistry between the two of them and you just felt sad that that had to end but i was just really surprised like oh this movie is still emotionally affecting 20 years later it was was a pleasant surprise yeah i absolutely came into this movie like thinking i would not like it um and you know i was gonna i got notes about uh the darjeeling limited here um which is another movie that probably should be on the the list for this podcast but um you know i feel like they both do use like asian people in in that um in Darjeeling Limited, you know, South Asian people uh, like me and and in this one, Japanese people as like props to like propagate the story about white people. Sure. Um, but, and so in that respect, like I was expecting to dislike it in the same way I kind of disliked Darjeeling. Um, but it wasn't affecting sort of uh, experience. And it did like, we've all had that experience, I think of something that uh, is a lifeline in a time when we are sort of adrift and, you know, changes our life. Um, my impression is that they're both going to change, you know, their lives and the rut that they're they're both in. Oh, uh, sure. I mean, one of the their... notes that I had was yeah. that there was scenes where uh, the Scarlett Johansson character was calling friends back in America on the verge of tears and they were just totally oblivious or not interested in the fact that their friend was sad and then they mm-hmm. have to kind of rely on this random ass stranger to have any sort of emotional comfort i mean it was they're both in kind of difficult positions yeah Yeah, absolutely and and i i think we've all had that experience and so in that respect i think it is a more uh deft sort of film um than darjeeling limited as an example um yeah i I also hated dar darjeeling (laughs) limited um 
I mean, and you know, Wes Anderson, like he he's this could be the Wes Anderson podcast, you know, yeah, based on the number of time number of movies on the list. Um, but like um I do think it's a universal experience that most people have had. And so I think it it does speak to something human. And so I can't hate this movie in the same way or dislike it. I don't I don't even hate Dark Dealing Limited. It's Wes Anderson. Oh, I, um, I absolutely hated that movie. <laughs> um but let me um I, I will touch on that kind of orientalist kind of thing. Um, I pull, I pulled some of the stuff right out of Wikipedia and then I commented on it, but like um, just really quickly, what I was going to say was that um, from, from Wikipedia, it says, while not a topic of most reviews, Lost in Translation received some charges of orientalist racial stereotyping in its depiction mm-hmm. of Japan. The filmmaker uh, E. Kuhan Paik argued that the film's comedy is quote, rooted entirely in the otherness of the Japanese people, end quote, and that the story fails to offer balanced characterizations of the Japanese, adding that it is, uh, or quote, it is the shirking of responsibility to depict them as full human beings, either negative or positive, which constitutes uh, discrimination or racism, end quote. Uh, similarly, the artist Kiku Day charged the Guardian that, or charged in the Guardian that, quote, there's no scene where the Japanese are afforded uh, a shred of dignity. The viewers sledgehammer, sledgehammered into laughing at these small yellow people and their funny ways, end quote. Um, for me personally, seeing Japan, especially in the early aughts, it felt like home, but it did feel like the other. And we talk about mm-hmm. the lip my stocking lady. And I think I remember that being a big part of the um, advertising for this film. Um and then later there's that strip club scene. Like, I don't, I don't know that I no, maybe people don't like me, but no one took me to a strip club. Um, <laughs> but it's like, you know, in this framework of Orientalism, like the West sort of defines itself against Asia or the Orient, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and Japan in this movie is this place of like weird sexuality that wouldn't happen in the U S and like, you know, it's something that happens in James uh, Clavel's Shogun, like, things like that. Like, it's just, we define our own like sexuality in the West, like by showing how weird it is in Japan, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's not just factual depictions of Asia, but the Yeah, I mean, the fact that they had that scene where Bill Murray jerked off to tentacle porn, like that was really unnecessary. Yeah, that was a little, yeah, um, that was weird. And it's not that the things in the movie aren't like necessarily like have happened in Japan, but like mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the guy looking at the 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 you know the hentai porn comic um, in the train. But I've been on planes where like Western people have watched pornography. Oh um, yeah, on their iPhone or their iPod or whatever. And I was I watched um what is that uh, broken lizard movie beer beer garden uh something like that beer yeah beer fest and there was a scene i was like oh shit like this is like i was watching it on a psp or an ipod or something and i was like oh shit this is weird like i don't want other people to see me Mm -hmm. watching this on the plane (laughs) and so when it happens in japan we say like oh that's japan but when it happens in the west to us we say like oh that's a weird thing that happened yeah it's just a that's just a pervert yeah yeah Um, yeah edward said's like academic training is in in literature and so it doesn't matter that like this is in a thing that's fiction uh, theoretically it's that we create this fiction in that uh, as I'm reading like the full book of Orientalism um, we can create the Occident can create a um, uh, a narrative about the uh, Orient and in doing so like 
has this ownership over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you create an image, you create an arc, uh, caricature of the uh, of Asia, and thereby sort of own it. Um, and then the other sort of like part from Wikipedia was like, Jeff King maintains that while depictions such as Charlotte's alienations from experiences like Ikebana, um, the flower arranging are evidence that the film abstains from Orientalist quote mythology of mythology of Japanese tradition as source of solace. The film uh, often situates Japan as a, a source of difference for the characters by relying on crude jokes and stereotypes of the Japanese as crazy or extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, Coppola reported being surprised by such criticism, saying that I think if everything is based on the truth, you can't make fun, have a little laugh. Uh, you can make fun, have a little laugh, but also be respectful of the culture. I just love Tokyo and I'm not mean spirited. Um, and I kind of agree. I don't I don't think Sofia Coppola is like mean spirited um, in any of her work. It's very sort of like humanist sort of uh, movie she makes. Mm-hmm. But I, I, you know, Saeed also talks about sort of like it doesn't have to be about mean spiritedness. Um, the individual people who started like sort of Orientalism as a academic discourse, they weren't necessarily mean spirited. Um, mm-hmm. It's coming about sort of just like um, an interest in and even like a, an idea that the a- Asian culture or studying Asian culture, um, especially like at that time, sort of like India, Sanskrit, things like that can re- renew or sort of uh, revive Western culture. And so um, you do see that in, um, you know, sort of, or you don't see that in the movie as much, but um, it can come from a place that's not mean spirited, but still sort of is like... Um, it didn't really do anything to defy stereotypes. Well, it didn't even do that, but it's creating yeah. like a story about Asian people that Asian people have no say in. And then doing so, like there is like this like ownership over it. Mm-hmm. Like, we know better than you and and things like that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember all, you know, I, I can't remember every depiction, but, you know, you, it starts off with the kind of the, the entourage there to escort Bill Murray through his yeah. job stuff. And it's just kind of the traditional, oh, here's the business cards. Hello, hello, bowing and the kind of really kind of the the, the coquettish woman. It's like, oh, Mr. Harris, you know, like the, so that's, you know, that's definitely not anything more than stereotypical and then the there's the tv host who is this outlandish character but you know that can't be indicative of the population as a whole as a whole but that's not necessarily a flattering portrayal either um there's the the friends yeah the friends that scarlett johansson has who live there but we don't get to know them at all yeah like so there really was no depiction of a japanese person that didn't sort of kind of fall in line with kind of traditional western yeah those asian people so crazy like and yeah like i i do wonder and this is what kind of gave me pause is like can you create a movie about this kind of alienation without having having it be set in somewhere like japan and the characters don't speak the language yeah i mean it is tough because it's a valid very valid point to say that there's not a full-fledged multi-dimensional japanese person in this movie but at the same time, given this story, I don't know how you would get that in there that wouldn't feel forced. So it's kind of like it's a weird it's a weird balance. Cause like the thing that comes to mind is with the like the John Carpenter's a thing where people are mm-hmm. like, oh, it's all men in that story. It's like, well, but that's also kind of how it was. They used to just send groups of guys to the Arctic and you know, get stuck in this shelter for months at a time. It's like, mm-hmm. that's, you know, I, I, 
I get it. And I don't know. I mean, I, God, I don't want to sound like some like right wing asshole. Well, we've established on like, the podcast that you are uh, a right wing Trump voter. Yeah. So. I'm also furious that I'm missing the uh, Republican debate tonight to date this episode. Oh, thank God. Uh, thank God you stopped me from hate watching that damn thing. I wanted to see what my boy DeSantis is going to do. He's made, <laughs> he's made Florida, you know, the anti-woke wonderland, baby. You know, he's going to make America Florida. Um, but no, I mean, but it, it you know, I peek behind the curtain. I'm a, I'm a failed creative who's still trying. And it's tough because like not every story can have everything in it. And so it it's, and it's tough, you know, I, I would like to give Sophia Coppola a benefit of the doubt. And I think I probably do, but I definitely like the, the sex worker scene. I don't think that needed to be in there. I mean, unless you're trying to show, Oh, he's, he's putting off having an affair just to contrast it later when he does have the affair. But I think that could have been done more subtly. Like that was the most egregious scene for me where it's just like, Oh, they're definitely playing up the inability to pronounce certain letters. And then Mm -hmm. kind of like the, the kind of the, I don't know, the stereotypical sex worker type mentality or approach where, you know, people think, Oh, I'm in a foreign land. All the, all the women are kind of sex objects type mentality. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's, I would say that scene you know, I don't remember whether I laughed at it when it came out 20 years ago, but this time that was kind of the cringiest part for me. Yeah, I was going to say like that beginning of the Wikipedia kind of mentioned like most of the reviews didn't mention, you know, this kind of Orientalist framework as a as a critique. Um, but I feel like if this movie came out now, that would be like a major sort of uh, theme and like how people talked about this movie. Sure. Um, so uh, I do think, like, in that sense, it's moved forward. Um, for me, like, I, I also, I agree. I was sort of thinking about it, like, could you make this same movie about alienation um, and not have it set in, like, not have other human beings, you know, be the prop because of their, of a different culture? And I think maybe you could, and I'm thinking of something like WandaVision, where Wanda is, like, um, spoiler alert for WandaVision, <laughs> sort of alienated from the rest of her town, but it's not, like, based on their race or culture it's based on sort of like the difference is you know well it's sort of a made-up town but um you know so i think you could but i do agree like there's a sense of like could you tell the same story and and maybe maybe not you couldn't you know you couldn't you couldn't have the same movie and work japanese people into it as people um because then you're sort of like breaking down that sort of isolation that's going on Mm -hmm. Um, that's an interesting that's an interesting thought experiment though like where what cities could this be placed in where it could have had the same effect like i think you could put this in hong kong because that's like that's another major world capital that has a lot of interesting stuff and there would be the language barrier um i don't know i feel like i feel like a lot of people in hong kong speak english yeah yeah you're probably right because the english influence Um, i wonder if you could set it like somewhere like in in northern italy or like Somewhere where there is that racial component, or like you're not like punching, it doesn't feel like you're punching down to a culture or a race. Yeah. Like, could you put like, this in like yeah. Brazil or like Argentina? Or I don't like where it's, you know, some of the population looks like gringos, but not everybody. And then not, not everybody speaks 
Well, I English. feel like you would even do it. And there have been shows like, well, again, I, I don't think it's quite the same sort of vibe, but like uh, Todd Margaret with uh, David Cross. <laughs> like you could be in England and speak the same language and still be like sort of culturally um, a fish out of water, so to say, or sure. to feel isolated. Oh, um, I mean, there were definitely times when, in England where someone spoke to me in English and I had no clue what the hell they said. Hello, Gugna. <laughs> um. Yeah, and so I, I feel like, and I don't hate the movie. Um, I do feel like there's this very humanist core, and there's a couple of things that I want to, you know, you mentioned sort of this like um, being creatives and and wanting to do it, and then not feeling like it's worked, um, and that comes up like very like you know briefly in the movie when Charlotte's talking to Bob, um, and I, that you know that that touched me too, um, and you know she was saying like I tried to be a writer and I hated everything I wrote. To be a yeah, that, that was the most relatable yeah. thing I've ever heard. Yeah, and and you know, um, that touched me too. And, and you know, but as also having been the other for like a lot of my, and this is why I think, you know, I have been like isolated for a lot of my life, it felt different, and so it wasn't as big a shock going to Japan um, as some people like that lived sort of as the majority in a culture felt um, when they were there. Um, that I knew, you know, when I when I met them, and so. I like the movie more than I thought I did, but I also have a hard time getting over being the other, sure. um, you know, and even more for Darjeeling, but that same conversation, or maybe was it that same conversation, but I have a note saying that uh, Charlotte says like, let's never come here again because it'll never be as much fun. Mm-hmm. And that was like, that really hit me. Like uh, that, like study abroad experience when I first lived in Japan was like so central to like, yeah, like it, it was so central to how I conceive of myself and everything. And um, I did think about like, is it ever going to be as good as it was that time? And, mm-hmm. you know, we have this human sort of experience of thinking about um, the times that we had before, like tend to get better and and um, the times that we're in, or maybe this is just us being like anxious boys or whatever, but mm-hmm. the times that we're in, we're less good. Um, and am I always trying to like chase that high or whatever? And um you know, I'd well, like that's to think an interesting thing to bring up too, because yeah. I, you know, no matter what type of relationship it was, they the two of them did have a relationship, a very close, intense relationship. Mm-hmm. But they were only ever in the honeymoon period. I guess there was some, you know, some infraction on it when she found out that he had cheated on his wife. And you know, I know some people can interpret that as oh, she was jealous, or some people can interpret it like oh, she's disappointed in him because mm-hmm. she knows he's married. Mm-hmm. So like, but beyond that, it was just the honeymoon period, it's like where you meet this person. It's like oh, they're great, they're they're so fascinating. I love being with them, and so like it really, it's more kind of like a depiction of the microcosm of a relationship where it's only good because it's short. And I, you know, I know I've had that, that feeling a few times over the years and, you know, it's, um, it's interesting to think about because it almost, I don't know. I don't know if there's any implication to say like, Oh, this is good because it is what it is rather than saying like, Oh, if they, if they, were to keep up this relationship whatever form it would inevitably kind of go the way of their other relationships yeah well i mean any relationship when you put the time into it like you're going to get to the point where you're going to have to sacrifice things and it's not just good like there's bad things about it or you're going to have to deal with things and um 
you know, like them, like leaving that experience, um, you know, lets them keep the good part and, and they don't have to deal with the aftermath of, of, you know, coming to, to, to know each other as people over a long period of time. And so, um, you know, and we have to like, understand like every good thing like ends, like it does like, uh, stop after a while. And, um, you, you enjoy the experience for what it was. And, um, I don't know, like my thought was like, I go to Japan, but it's been like as a student and then as like a, a working adult with like very little money. And then like, as an adult with like a few dollars in my pocket and like, those have been different times and different times in my life. And I've gotten different things out of it. And so, sure. yeah, like I, I, you know, I, I like to think in my best moments, like it's not just trying to chase that same high all the time. It is like something different. It is something, um, you know, uh, I am gaining like something different from it. But that same conversation, you know, for me, especially like she says, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be. And she's 22 and I'm like 39. And I'm like, I still don't know what I'm supposed to be. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I don't know. I I don't see. <sighs> Never mind. I don't know where I was going with that thought. <laughs> um. We can, we can cut that. We could edit that. No. Um, and then, um, you know, she says like, oh, like John thinks I'm snotty. And then, uh, you know, Bob doesn't say you're not snotty. He says, you're not hopeless. Um, and, uh, you know, to that, to me, it was like really where that relationship like kind of crystallized into something that's not just uh, Bob trying to get into Charlotte's pants. It's uh, a really human response. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's I where the, the, yeah. the kind of the, the fatherly element came in i felt yeah. like yeah because he was definitely comforting her and you know that you know mentioning the scene where she doesn't kind of get along with her husband and uh the anna fairs character like that that actually ended up being one of my favorite scenes because the whole part anna fairs's character is talking about how her dad was anorexic because he was a war prisoner after mm-hmm. the bay of pigs invasion and that he was tortured and in, in, in as a side effect became anorexic and I made a note to myself thinking, oh, this is pretty clever that the, the Charlotte character is stuck in this terrible conversation that is borderline torture while listening to this person talking about her parent being tortured. I thought that was like a little slight inside joke. And it mm-hmm. it just reminded me of a someone that I dated years ago who I really did not get along well with her friends. I just we were just on separate wavelengths. And there was one morning I remember she was like, oh, I'm going to go to brunch with these people. You want to go? I was like, oh, no, I have stuff to do. And then I left her apartment and went and got a breakfast burrito on my own because that was a far more satisfying experience than the prospect of going out with these people. You want to go uh, have breakfast with my friends? No, I'd rather enjoy my day. Yes, pretty much. That's what it boiled down to. So it wasn't a shock when that relationship didn't last too much longer. (laughs) I have, uh, well, um, I have uh, two more notes and one more thing I was going to say, like TV Tropes actually says that Anna Ferris's character was based on sort of uh, Sofia Coppola's uh, experiences with Cameron Diaz. And so oh, I don't know how... Oh, I can see that very yeah. easily. Well, that's something my my significant other was wondering. She was curious. She watched it with me last night. She was wondering how much of the uh, Scarlett Johansson-Giovanni Ribisi relationship mirrored Sophia Coppola and her uh, husband, I don't know if it's ex-husband or not, but Spike Jones, her relationship yeah. with him, which you can't 
you feel like has to be there with the fact that he's a, the, the character is a photographer and yeah. Spike Jones, I think was a, was he photography before he got into directing? I, I can't remember yes. for sure. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's not a far leap if he, yeah. if he wasn't. Well, I, so, you know, I read that afterwards and I was like, yes, absolutely. In the sense that um, I don't think, I don't understand. I don't see how you would get such an intimate picture of Charlotte if Sofia Coppola didn't base it on her own experiences like even that just like being in her underwear um you know when she was alone in the yeah without sexualizing it too yeah well that you know going off that that's an even more that's a pretty impressive thing too that she pretty well encapsulated like middle-aged male loneliness too so i mean you gotta give her some kudos for being able to kind of have the sophistication to kind of know how to portray that in a realistic way i mean to be fair like Every every movie is about is about like middle aged male. Oh sure, I mean that's the yeah. whole excuse for this podcast is that yeah. we realize oh there's an excessive amount of movies about sad men and yeah. you know as two former sad men that may be something we're talking about. So I mean she you're right that she had a there was no lack of uh, resources for her to, to to derive the story from for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, one th- other thing that I wanted to mention was uh, the music, and there wasn't a yes, ton we of, have like, to talk about the music. Yeah, I didn't notice a lot of the non-diegetic music uh, in the movie until uh, Charlotte goes to Kyoto, and that air song "Alone in Kyoto." Listened to it so much, both before going to Japan uh, because I liked air, mm-hmm. uh, and in Japan because I was an emo uh, early twenty-something. We both uh, were. <laughs> it's true. And in the course of like breakups and dating and like all of that stuff. And I haven't heard it in like at least 10 years. And so when that song started, like I got chills. Like it was such a, it brought me back to being like a 20 year old. Um, and, uh, you know, like I, I don't know. I, it just, it, it impacted me. And I'm, I'm having a hard time sort of like even verbalizing like what it meant or like how it, uh, emotionally affected me but like it was it you know not only is it a good song and not only are they a great band um it just like brought me back to a time that you know um was sort of like scabbed over or like you know kind of uh buried a little bit in the past after a lot of like other experience oh sure i mean i had a very similar proustian experience but with the the sometimes my bloody valentine needle drop because mm-hmm. This movie introduced me to my bloody Valentine, and after seeing it, I definitely downloaded Loveless, and that was one of my go-to like long drive albums to listen mm-hmm. to for years, especially you know around the college area. So I had the same experience when that came on. You know, I think it's assisted by the fact that that scene takes place with her being driven around in a car, but I associate that song so much with driving and kind of mm-hmm. like this being in the middle of nowhere middle of the night just dun 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 and it's just like it definitely it it wasn't a crystal clear memory but it was kind of like a miasma of like mm-hmm. all these memories tied in together where it just was it felt like a time machine in a way so yeah i mean the music in this movie was great i mean it de- introduced me to my buddy Valentine, as i said and as you talk about the, the stripper, the uh, strip club scene, <laughs> Peach's Fuck the Pain Away is playing. And I'm pretty sure this may have been my first introduction to that. Mm-hmm. And that's been one of my like favorite like 
I don't know how to describe it. That's a, that's a song I like to play to contrast with the setting where it's just like, yeah. if if it's like a having a dinner party and a bunch of friends are over, I would like to put that on just to kind of see who's paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and then that, uh, that uh, Jesus and Mary chain song at the end, like mm-hmm. beautiful. Like I loved it. Um, and I thought it was interesting. Like there wasn't any like Japanese rock um, or anything like that, even though there was like stuff, you know, I was going to rock concerts, uh, even like, you know, 05, 06, like, um, except there was um, some music at the arcade when all the games they seemed to be playing were like music-based games. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, was that, was that Guitar Hero before it reached the States? Yeah, I don't think it was like Guitar Hero, Guitar Hero, but I think it was like a guitar game. It might have been, um, I think Konami made it. Fuck it. Uh, I remembered the name of it, but I can't. Maybe Guitar Freaks was the name of it. I don't know, but they did a version of it. And so I'm I think the like guitar hero stuff and like the 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 fad of like plastic instruments uh with a, a music video game was a little bit later in the US. And so I think it was supposed to be alienating or weird in the arcade, but then it became a fad in the US. Um um you know, which I think just goes to show like this sort of trying to like otherize Japan. And we like did the same thing, um, you know, two years later or three years later or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's one. I don't know. The, the music was one of the things I definitely want to talk to you about because yeah. it's such a, a shoegazy soundtrack, which is yeah. so, so appropriate for this film. Because it's, you know, the whole point of shoegaze is that you're staring down at the ground, kind of staring at your own navel. Yeah. I guess navel gazing is the other you know name for it, but I mean, so much of this movie is introspective. So I guess yeah. there's four characters. Kind of... Two of them are the main characters. They're very sort of. I mean, it's not interior in the sense that we hear like any sort of interior narration or anything like that. But um, we're learning about their interior thoughts, like as they like kind of bounce off each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's another reason I love that. Uh, I love the version suicide is that entire like air soundtrack is like fantastic. I will say there is one guy wearing a Pizza of Death t-shirt um, at the party, um, which is a Japanese record label that does like punk and rock. And uh, I bought, like, I got a lot of like high standard CDs when I was there, which is one of their, like, um, one of the labels, like, uh, best known acts. So, um, yeah, like, so that was the only, like, uh you know, like nod to like Japanese music that I saw, which like, you know, was a little bit saddening, but I do get it, I guess, in the sense that um, Japanese music would also break down that barrier of like feeling isolated. Sure. Well, you know, I feel like there could have been a way to incorporate it that it would have worked, but I don't know. What do I know? One other question I had for you is like, um, I think the idea of the um, manic pixie girl sort of postdates this movie. Um I remember hearing it for the first time with like Zoe Deschanel and like mm-hmm. 500 Days of Summer and stuff like that. I'm sure it was in use before that. Um, I'm sure I was late to the party, but I don't remember that being a, a talking point for this film. Uh, do you think Charlotte fit that um, stereotype? My immediate reaction is no, just because mm-hmm. she's too sad. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think she... In a way, she made Bill Murray feel better about himself, but it wasn't the way that I traditionally think of the uh, the manic pixie 
stereotype where it's just kind of i associate that with like life is great let's go do something outlandish let's go skinny dipping you know it's Mm -hmm. like something more akin to that where this is just like oh hey do you want to go get dinner like it wasn't you know maybe it's at the very you know maybe it's on that register but at the very smallest scale Mm -hmm. um i didn't really get that because i you know i i empathize with that character where it's like you're po- post you know you just graduate college well, you know for some reason she's married at 23 which i think that's a mistake but whatever but the fact it's like okay i don't really know what i'm doing i don't know if i actually like the people that i'm around right now like there was a lot of youthful angst that i could relate to that wasn't kind of over the top or annoying or um she just she just felt like i you know if Bill Murray's the sad man that made us watch this, she's the sad woman who kind of provides a parallel in mm-hmm. some kind of misery loves company scenario between the two of them. Yeah. Um, I was on the fence about it. I do like she had that pink wig. Um, when they had the party in the karaoke, she stole his jacket, um, but she returned the jacket. Um, and I think we do get a lot more of her like interior like motivations and why she feels like she's in a rut than we would get for the normal manic pixie girl. Cause I think at its core, the idea of the manic pixie girl is that like, she is also a prop that helps the main character sort of like mm-hmm. get in touch with his like wilder side or like understand, or uh, even like in 500 days of summer, like get over it and, and move on to the next thing. Um, but I did think there were elements of it there and I don't, I, I I would have to look into it more. I don't know if I necessarily agree that the manic pixie girl can't be sad sometimes or um, that kind of thing. But I do think we understand more about Charlotte than we would in the sort of normal manic pixie girl kind of, kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very good question to ask because that this may have been kind of the, the beginning of the manic pixie, manic pixie girl era. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least I know that I was, you know, going back to our indie emo music roots at the time, I know every time I was going to a show, I was like, oh, I hope I meet the emo girl of my dreams tonight. <laughs> like, you know, so I definitely, uh, it was a situation I was very mindful of in my painfully mm-hmm. single uh, college days. Yeah, and you know, like the trope maker tends to be the person who does it the best and then people rip it off without sort of like understanding. Um, so I'm not saying that this is necessarily that, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if it had sort of a, a part to play in, in sort of the the rise and fall of the Manic Pixie Girl uh, in the 2000s. Yeah, I, I that would be a very interesting thing to examine. Maybe we should transition to doing a Manic Pixie Dream Girl podcast. We should. We Or we should, it should be like the bonus episodes of this. Because uh, mm-hmm. I know I really wanted to do like Alien and Aliens. And every time I'm like, shit, Ripley's a girl. Like I can't, uh. Ripley's a woman. I can't. We can't do, add you just want to do an alien podcast because I love alien. I, I, I <laughs> yes, I've only seen alien and aliens, but I would do that podcast. All right, we're doing two spinoffs. We're doing the the manic pixie middle aged man podcast, and then we're doing in space. No one could hear you complain about alien. <laughs> no, no one could hear you complain about predator or Prometheus. Um, uh... <laughs> um. Listen, if anyone listens to this podcast, those can be the Patreon episodes as well. Oh, sure. Oh, all right. Well, I got more notes, but I, I don't know if any of them were really 
Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, there's more stuff we could talk about, but I think we maybe hit it good. All right, I'll get I'll get three questions for you. Okay. What would their jazz band have been named? I kind of want to go with Mushi Mushi. Like every time um, John spoke Japanese, it like killed me to my core. Like <laughs> his pronouncing. Uh, he's. I. I had a note like the the prefecture is Fukuoka, and then he said something like. Where, where, where do you put that? I put my like, um, Fukuoka, 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 I think is how he pronounced it. And then he said Mushi Mushi. Um, and so that killed me, but um, I think it might be a good one for uh, Bob and Charlotte. Um, whew, what else? I mean, like, I feel like there's a lot of lines they probably would, the black toe or the, Oh, Lost that would have been toe. great. Yeah. Oh, man. Shit, I can't think of anything better than the Black Toe or the Lost Black Toe. That, that's, <laughs> that's really good. Oh. Uh, did you have any suggestions? Um, I was trying to think of some playoff Jenny Lewis because she and Bill Murray had a relationship. And mm-hmm. I have a hard time listening to some recent Jenny Lewis songs that wondering if they're about him. Uh, Head's going to roll specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Um, fantastic song. Hmm. No, I got nothing. Fair enough. Okay, so that we got question one, question two. All right, question two. This is a this is a more emotional one or a sad one. You don't have to go in depth. You can it can be a yes no answer. Okay. Have you ever had a moment when you're saying goodbye to someone and you know you're probably never going to see them again? No, uh, I'm very cynical, but I, when it comes to goodbyes, like either I try not to do the goodbye, um, or I, uh, feel like I'm going to see them again. That's not been true in a lot of cases, but, uh, in that moment, I'm like, we'll figure it out. Uh, or, you know, maybe we don't talk for three years and then like, we'll talk again or like whatever. But I do, I go in thinking like this and I I never think it's going to be the last time we talk or that we see each other. You're a more optimistic man than I am because I can think of two instances off the top of my head. And finally, I think the question that everybody asks after watching this movie, what did he whisper to her? Yeah. Uh, my wife and I also watched it together and she, he was, she was like, I really want to know what he said. Um, I mean, you kind of, again, spoiler filmmaking alert, uh, Coppola told Murray just like, say anything you want like um so you know clearly the the idea is that it doesn't matter what he said it matters that he said it like um i don't know um i do feel like this is going to be so, like an experience and a relationship that they use to improve their lives and i want to think that whatever he said uh fits into that or feeds into that um but I don't know. <laughs> it could have been like any meal where you have to cook your own food. Terrible. <laughs> yeah, I I was split. I could I had two thoughts watching the whisper scene. One was it was something reassuring mm-hmm. that you know it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this, which I guess goes into the perspective of well, is it a paternal relationship between the two of them? Mm-hmm. But then also part of me was just like. 
here, find me. He, this is where I'm going to be if you want need want to or need to find me again. Because I think I want to say it's like she nods at one point, so it's like it's either it's either like an agreement or like okay, but yeah. So I, I guess it depends on you know. I I still can't decide how I want to interpret their relationship. So I think that's why I have two interpretations of what he said. Yeah. So there's um, this, I mean, and I, I wonder if Sofia Coppola was aware of this idea. I, I suspect not, but like, there's this idea that, you know, in Japan and, and obviously other places, because we have this saying in English, but you know, the brightest flame sort of burns the quickest. And sure. Samurai would like associate themselves with cherry blossoms because they were the first sort of uh, flowers to fall off the tree during each spring. Um, and so I wonder, I want to believe, I, 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 kind of believe that both of them knew that this experience was sort of like limited and and that they it's not going to happen again and i kind of i go back to what you know charlotte said about let's never come here again because it'll never Mm -hmm. be much fun and you know as someone with parent you know parental stuff like i do hope that bill murray you know kind of reinforced or just said like you're not hopeless that, that that there is something and and he may not know like what that thing is, or he may not have the exact sort of um, plan for her or guidelines for her or like whatever, but can at least just say like, you are a person who exists and you can make it through whatever is like the next thing or whatever happens. And so that was kind of my hope, but it probably says more about me than it says about kind of what happened in the movie or. Oh, or... sure. But I think that's such a brilliant way to end the film is that having that ambiguity mm-hmm. does let somebody fill in the gap and they're inevitably going to fill it in with what they want to hear. And I yeah. think that's a really clever bit of filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She's a, Sophia Coppola is a fantastic filmmaker. Like I can't, you know, I, even if I uh, have issue with some of the sort of, you know, orientalism of the movie, like I can't take that away from her. And I, I wouldn't want to, like I'm mm-hmm. a fan for a reason. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, it's been 20 years, like we've been, I've mentioned a few times. I mean, do you think we can, that this can be considered a classic? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have my own personal beef again with the sort of sure othering of, of. Yeah. It's people. not a perfect movie by any no. means. I, I do think you could, you could put it up there, I, I, you know, in a way that again, the Darjeeling Limited is not, um, you could put that into that sort of, you know, especially sort of early aughts, you know, or aughts like indie movie. Like I would put that up there. Sure. All right. Well, I guess that ends our discussion of loss in translation and to bring it back to the sad man pretense for this podcast. If we're going to learn anything about Bill Murray's sadness, I guess the way to kind of fix it is to travel alone to a foreign city and have an emotional affair with a pretty young woman and then, you know, you know, feel better. So I guess that's the advice to take away from this movie. I live my life by the tenets of Bill Murrayism, which is how he acts in every late period movie. Yeah, you know, I was going to, I almost at, wanted to ask your opinion on Bill Murray, because I guess he's been sort of outed as a asshole in recent years, but. Let's save it know. for The Life Aquatic, because I, I really do want to do that one. Oh, I, spoiler alert, I love that movie. So do I. <laughs> okay, yeah, we're, we'll get to that eventually, for sure. I know that's on our list, so. um all right. Well, I don't know if I. T- oh no, I told you we have an email address now. Uh, it's what is it? Riddy Riddy and Tom? No, it's. Hold on. What the fuck did I name that podcast? Uh... Damn it! I 
should have been prepared. You know what? I'll put a stinger at the end. If anyone wants to email us. Tell us your favorite movies or movies you want us to discuss on the podcast. Or Yeah. Also, do you need to vent and you don't have a therapist at the moment? Please don't email us. Get a therapist. <laughs> no bummers. Uh, <laughs> Find a professional. Please. It's okay. To, yeah, it's okay to be a bummer, but... If, if you're in a bummer mood, we want you to not be in a bummer mood, and we are not equipped to help you with that. We are not professionals. No, but, you know, we, we've we been there, you know, just like uh, the hypothetically whispered into your ear. We'll just tell you, it's going to be okay. You're going to, you're going to leave your, your bad photographer husband, and everything's going to be all right. You're not hopeless. We're also an ASMR podcast now. Shh. Konnichiwa, I guess. Sayonara. I I guess I shouldn't be saying this stuff. All (laughs) right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We will be back next week with. We did we? I think we know, but we haven't announced it yet. Well, you'll see. I think it's what we do in the shadows. We're doing it. Come on. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure if we wanted to announce it yet. Yes, we're going to be doing what we do in the shadows for. uh, We're going to get spooky for October. So. Get ready for that, everybody. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye.